Thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout. I am Gregory Hargreaves, Program Officer in the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. And during these history hangouts, we like to bring you some of the most innovative research being done out of the Hagley Library collections, especially by some of our funded researchers. One such researcher is joining me today, Dr. Lee Kornfeld, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Michigan Digital Studies Institute. And before that was our NEH Hagley postdoctoral fellow in the Hagley Center. Thank you so much for joining me today, Lee. Oh, thank you for having me. That's great. Um, uh, today we're going to be talking about your book project, which I know is tentatively titled Theater of Invention, Live Performance in the Tech Industry. So why don't you please tell us more about your work and about your project? Sure. Um, so, right. So I'm working on a book project called The Theater of Invention, uh, Live Performance in the Tech Industry, which looks at live performance in the tech industry. Um, <laughs> I, the book grew out of my dissertation, uh, which my training is in media and communication studies. Um, and my, uh, my dissertation looked at places where emerging technologies are introduced through live performance. So like trade shows, um, keynote addresses, really industry sites where, um, where technologies are unveiled for an audience of industry insiders. Um, and I'm interested in the way that um, the way that the kinds of promotional discourses that we often associate with consumer culture actually begin before products start circulating um, towards consumers and, and shape the way that industry thinks about the emergence of new technologies. Mm -hmm. um, and so for the dissertation part of the project, um, there was a, I guess, there was a slight history component. Um, the, this started with the introduction of the personal computer um, in the 80s, most-ish. Uh, but mostly I was looking at, at like on the ground ethnographic research at expos, quasi-ethnographic. They're like short events, but I, would, I went to like a dozen expos across mm. the US and Canada. Um, and I uh, was looking at like the theatrical spectacles that are really part of the production of, of technology, even mm -hmm. though they're like, they sort of fall in between, like it's not exactly marketing, it's not exactly, um, and so I was looking at those kinds of spectacles as production. Um, and then- sort of a means of assigning meaning to these devices or technologies. Right. Yeah. Exactly, right, as a way, right, a way to think about some like places where technologies are reframed or, mm. Um, given like it's a place like I'm interested in industry in industry sites as places where you can see um, like the industrial imagination of what of like the significance of a new technology whether or not it gets taken up on those terms hmm. um, and then what brought me um, what brought me to Hagley was I so that was the dis and then for the book project um, at least I have one version of the book project is uh, to build out an earlier history of um, of these kinds of spectacles. Uh, and the Hagley is, so, okay, so how should, in what order is it helpful to explain this? Um, so I was thinking. Well, how, how about this? Um, yeah. let, I, I want to come back to where you started um, okay, great. with uh, trade shows. Mm -hmm. And as with these acts of performance, because could you maybe give us a, a, an example of oh, sure. um, um, uh, what these places are like and, and what sort of 
uh, activities going on. Right. Yes. And actually, I should say, so my training is in my PhD is in media and communication studies. I also have a background in performance studies. Mm. And so part of the way that I was approaching trade shows was as sites of performance where the theatrical spectacle, um, as, as you just put it, shapes the meaning of a technology. Sometimes they're like very... Uh, like, for example, at the Consumer Electronics Show, which actually now goes only by CES, but originally it was the Consumer Electronics Show, mm -hmm. now it's an acronym that means nothing, uh, partly as a way of, I think, shedding the sense of, like, electronics has such a mid-century sensibility, and so now it's, now they've, the organization that runs it, which is now the Consumer Technology Association, rather than the Consumer Electronics Association, has, they've made the name just CES. Mm -hmm. um, so CES is this massive spectacle. Um, it happens every year in Las Vegas uh, over a period of roughly four days. Um, it's attended by, uh, like, I think the last one that I went to was attended by something like 170,000 people um, in Las Vegas in a period of, so it's like everybody's crunched into the Vegas Strip. Um, and there are also, it's like, it's like a jam-packed spectacle. And then part of the part of the project of being an exhibitor, an exhibitor at a show like this is to create um, a trade show booth that both attracts attention to your booth and that also potentially sheds light on like what your technology might be. So like mm. um so like uh, I've seen like protective devices for like smartphones, uh, like waterproof protective devices um, introduced by women dressed like mermaids. Uh, <laughs> I saw a, a, um, a smartwatch that protects ident against identity theft promoted by an Elvis impersonator thinking about identity <laughs> theft. Um, some of them are like kind of on the nose. Sometimes they're more abstract um, using like uh, like a, a, I think I went to like a mattress display. Also, like what counts as a technology in these places mm. is also really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes they're like uh, digital technologies. There are um, CES, especially, has a really expansive sense of what a technology, like what you're allowed to present there, um, or who's 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 welcome, what kinds mm. of products, and they're subdivided. Uh, bigger companies will have like really elaborate displays that take up like a large portion of the expo floor. Startups might have just like a startup booth because uh, companies will purchase in a, like the amount of floor space depending on their budgets. Um, and so actually one of the ways that I'm, one of the things I'm interested in is the way that the role of spectacle um, can uh, like give a company, a, I guess, a larger, larger presence than it's, than it's mm -hmm. like, footprint allows um, and then the way that uh, the way that people move through these spaces I think about as a kind of um, brandscaping is a, a term that comes both from like the advertising industry and also is sometimes used in critical approaches to mm -hmm. promotional culture thinking about mm -hmm. a brandscape as like a living like a three-dimensional space that people can walk around in um, mm. Not necessarily, they're different. It's one of these terms that gets used differently. That's one of the ways that I think about it. And mm -hmm. so I think about these trade show booths as brandscapes, but brandscapes that are designed for 
for industry, not so much for consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, now the people who go to these shows are also often early adopters and there's like, uh, sometimes the lines are not so stark, but mm-hmm. the identification with industry as like a part of the industry is like a, a key part of um, like creating a sense of like global community within a particular space. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if this answered your question. This is mm-hmm. maybe getting so sure. far. Uh, certainly, and it yeah. seems to me like um, uh, there's at least an attempt or an impression on the parts of some participants that the expo is the marketplace, and it's a little bit sounds a little bit like that's what the brandscape experience is meant to convey. That this is the market. It's not. Uh, it's not merely a spectacle. Right, and and it's interesting because often trade shows aren't places where. Like there are places where networking is essential, especially in like uh, like a global industry where people are, you know, um, all different people end up at these shows with different kinds of objectives. So buyers and distributors are looking for products to put, uh, you know, to, to buy and distribute. Exhibitors are looking for people to distribute their products. There are also investors looking for companies to invest in. Um, journalists are scouting emerging trends, though a lot of the journalism that comes out of shows like this because they're so quick ends up being um, kind of like breathless excitement about like the next big thing, which is really like one of the things that really pervades these shows is a sense of like, this is where you can see it. Here's where you can see the future, Um, which in some ways is a very old promise. the idea of like an uh, an expo that will that will showcase progress, though some of the keywords have shifted. Mm-hmm. Progress isn't so much something we talk about anymore. And I should say, this year, because of the pandemic, um, CES was all digital for the first time in its history. Mm-hmm. Uh, I attended CES here in this space <laughs> um, by watching it, and that was. Uh, there's a lot more to be said about what happens when it's when they're when it's all in digital space mm-hmm. um, <laughs> yeah. uh, what about your experience at Hagley um, and I do think um, I know your time in the archives and the collections was cut short but um, as you mentioned this there's a longer history to these public shows these displays that are at least um, meant as a as giving some sort of insight into the future, or at least into the, the present moment. Um, right. Could you perhaps uh, elaborate on how you connect that with, um, say, Steve Jobs unveiling the latest iPhone or what have right, you? Right, so, right. So what brought me to the Hagley partly um, was, some, so for the, when I was turning the dissertation into a book manuscript was, I said that in the past tense, like I'm not doing it right now. I'm still doing it. Um, Mm -hmm. But when I began thinking about how to turn the dissertation into a book manuscript, um, I had part of the the, like impetus behind my research at the Hagley was to look at a much longer history of tech exhibitions. Um, And specifically, I became interested in world's fairs and industrial exhibitions beginning in 1851 with the great exhibition of the works of industry of all nations. in London. And you know, I think one of the things that happens sometimes when you're working on a dissertation is like 
you have to stay focused on the project that you have set out for yourself. But as you, you're writing it, at least my experience is often to be like, oh, but I, I, I would also like to follow this thread in this direction. And I, so I became uh, really interested in, in thinking about a history of world's fairs that didn't, wasn't part of the dis. And I was like, this be, so I thought this would be helpful for the book manuscript to, uh, to build out a longer history, partly to show um, the endurance of this, of similar kinds of frames, right? So like mm -hmm. Steve Jobs mm -hmm. stands on a stage and unveils an iPhone. And I became interested in, in the way that, um, like every history of technology, that's wild hyperbole, many histories of technology uh, have references to demonstrations of that technology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Though demonstrations are not usually studied as an act, um, mm. as like an act in their own right. Um, and so bringing my performance studies background and particularly an interest in the ephemerality of live performance um, as something that I became interested in the way that these like ephemeral acts of demonstration become a market practice and the way that that perhaps Apple's elaborate spectacles are not necessarily part of the innovation that Apple is uh, spectacularizing um, by looking at a much longer history of both like live demonstrations and uh, visual exhibitions as, as a way to think about um, like the endurance of those practices and also a way to push back against some of the presentism that is really pervasive in tech discourse. Um, and then also, of course, looking at the ways that language changes across a really long history, like the rhetorics that are used to explain what a new technology will do. Um, and, and most especially, I think, who is present at these events um, mm -hmm. is something that I was and continue to be really interested in, in teasing out. Like, for example, World's Fairs, uh, World's Fairs and industrial exhibitions um, have like a global cosmopolitan um, attendance, of course, uh, which is a, a shift. What do you think about like the shift, shift towards something like, like CES, this trade show, which while it attracts 170,000 people, um, all of those people are tech industry insiders. To attend, you have to have, you have to register, you have to be vetted to be part of the industry. And so one of the things that I'm interested in is in the ways that technologies are debuted, um, a shift from like a public exhibition to a, for like a kind of imagined uh, like global community, um, always imagined, but part of a fantasy and then the kind of shift towards a global industry um, as, mm -hmm. as, a, as a way to think through shifts in public institutions and senses of like public collectivity more broadly um, and the way that industry and industry, um, like, indus like industrial communities uh, take the place of or supersede or um, restrict access. I'm not, mm. I, I need to do more of this research. Um, mm -hmm. The pandemic happened during my fellowship at the Hagley. And so I was in the middle of doing a lot of this research when, when we all had to uh, <laughs> do a uh, oh. I, I do have a follow-up question. I wonder if you could answer maybe perhaps mm. tentatively, um, whether that leaves the public discourse or the public understanding around technical innovation impoverished. Um, 
I'm not sure. Wait, can you say that again? Maybe I'm not. What do you, oh, wh- why, why do you ask her? In what way do you mean? Um, sort of by e- excluding a general public from right. the unveiling of the latest technology, uh-huh. uh, by sort of relegating that experience to a select private body as opposed to a general public. Yeah. Does that leave the general public um, somewhat um, less able to um, discuss, appreciate, and perhaps even control ultimately um, technology for, for the public good? So one of the things that of course shifts slowly in this time is, um, and really that shifted while I was doing this research mm. um, was the advent of Twitter and that kind of, those kinds of practices, which create, mm-hmm. um, so some of the research that I had started to do at the Hagley was looking at correspondence from World's Fairs, like postcards that people send or mementos mm-hmm. that are very much serving the purpose of saying like, I got to this World's Fair and you know, here's, here's what I'm seeing and sending it beyond so those things circulate, um, but they circulate more slowly. Uh, I think, so there is, and Mm. this year CES was a bit Mm -hmm. different because it was online. So there is a way to engage while being remote, but Mm -hmm. I think, and I I need to like look more, I need to spend more time in the archives, but my sense is that um, a lot of the discourses that happen around new technologies right now, particularly in the kinds of journalism that that, uh, is part of the rollout of, of, prototypes or at, at these kinds of events are so, um, I'm concerned about the ways that the, the way that the, the meanings of technologies or like the visions for technologies get really set by industry when the mm. public isn't part of those events. Mm. Um, now was framing part of the rollout of technologies at World's Fairs of course, it's part, also part of the things that I'm mapping, but I'm thinking that um, the like the sense of like, let me show you the special thing and we're all here together and can see this. There's a different kind of, um, of a like insider culture that gets cultivated when, when, the, when an industry affiliation is required to enter those spaces. Mm-hmm. So in terms of like public understanding of of science and technology also science like has really fallen away in terms of what these kinds of events um like the archives like a lot of the archival discourse around this is about science and technology and at the tech shows that i go to science maybe it i'm sure this is partly just where i look but also we talk about tech more so than we talk about mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So these are like other kinds of older terms and thinking about the significance of those things is something that i would uh, very much like to map out. Um, but yeah, I think that there is perhaps a collapse around, um, around thinking about science outside of industry Mm. that is part Mm. of, um, part of the events that I'm looking at Mm. in contrast to some of the, some of the histories of, of demonstrations Mm. and expos, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, could you maybe uh, give us a, a really memorable, exciting, or unusual example of uh, a technology promotion or demonstration um, that I've seen, or in well, that you've discovered in your work, uh, whether um, in, uh, in the archives or in person? 
Sure. So, well, a thing that I have been thinking about lately, um, because I've been been writing about it, is uh, a demonstration of um, toy drones that uh, I've watched being displayed on a full theatrical stage. And the drones have a choreographed dance and the backstage space is very tiny and engineers uh, like are manning the drones and there's a musical score and the drones like perform this really elaborate number. Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking about, I'm really writing about, writing about that right now, which is why it's like, <laughs> and, um, and I'm thinking about the way that uh, like what it is to turn a technology that has, you know, a way of transforming a technology of war into a technology of play and to do mm. it through like a proscenium stage um, where the drones mm. become balletic. Mm -hmm. uh, that's something that I'm thinking a lot about right now. Yeah, it seems almost overkill. Because it's, it, it's not a demonstration of how you're meant to use these devices. Right, and this is in the case. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, no, quite. Um, just that it's, uh, it's uh, almost too cute by half the way they're trying to domesticate these devices. Right, and this is what's so interesting. Like, they're not, it's, it's, a, re like, it's a compelling example, I think, I hope, because it's not... Um, right, the idea isn't that you're going to buy a fleet of toy drones and... <laughs> I'm figuring out how to program them so they can perform a ballet. Though, um, it is Good. one might, um, I mean, so there are uh, increasingly drones used in lieu of um, fireworks. Um, Intel's drones are often used uh, like as grand displays um, mm. at the, and where just recently, oh my goodness, so much has happened recently. Where, <laughs> when did this happen? Was it part of, was it part of the Biden inauguration? What event recently had a lot, that can't be, why would there be fireworks? It was in the daytime. Okay, I have to look up at what event this just recently happened. It's happened mm -hmm. before too, that you see drones being used like on a large spectacle scale. Kind Coordinated of, might lights and dance. Right, and a way to, um, like a firework display but it's so there is like a grand scale version of this but this is like a small company uh, showing like how you might use a toy right and i it's exactly right i'm interested in the way that the theatrical spectacle shows not necessarily exactly how how users are meant to um to take up a technology but how the spectacle shifts like the cultural imagination of what a techno of like what the in this case, what a drone might be. Mm -hmm. um, right. So that's, yeah, that's the thing I'm thinking about. So how did your NEH Hagley postdoc um, um, aid or uh, impact your professional development? Um, this is, it is such a wonderful fellowship uh, in many ways. First, just having the space to write um, I mean, the archives are, of course, an incredible resource, um, as is just like having, uh, you know, uh, like a carol in which to write. There's just just writing space. And I wasn't teaching at the time. And um, particularly as I was, you know, revising a dissertation, which I wrote. When you're like in it with a dissertation, it can be sort of hard to have perspective beyond the dissertation. And so it was mm. so uh immeasurably helpful to be in a new space 
and to like just have space to like work through those ideas and reflect on them. I also wrote new pieces while I was at the Hagley, um, partly excited about um, like much like with a dissertation where you want to follow threads in different directions. Uh, so part of what was useful at the Hagley was um, the Hagley has an incredible wealth of World's Fair materials that were, uh, that, you know, originally drew me there, but there were also, there's so much uh, to get lost in. And I did, um, and that was just a fun space to like play around in. It was also really wonderful to participate in um, uh, working groups, discussing people's work. I shared some of my work, all of the lectures. As somebody who's not trained as a historian, um, many of the folks at the Hagley, though not everybody, are historians, and I learned a great deal um, just by being in conversation with people whose training, whose approach to material is um, like adjacent to things like that I think about. I mean, certainly mm -hmm. I am trained in media historiography. There are ways that I can approach, but it was really um, generative to be able to be in conversation with people who have um, like a wealth of training and ideas and really cool projects that I uh, was really happy to learn about. Both uh, folks around the Hagley and other visiting scholars, it was really, um, I so appreciated it at that time. And now in this time when everybody is um, more isolated, I, goodness, I miss it. I miss it a great deal. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's kind of you to say. Um, uh, it's it's oh. true. True. There's one idea I remember you sharing um, during a workshop back then. Um, I don't know whether you've had any time to do much with it, but it's promosexuality. Yes. And, oh, Greg, that is so kind of you to remember. And I, I wonder whether you won't uh, share uh, that idea with the audience and maybe sure. elaborate upon um, where it comes from and where you might take it. Great. Sure. So uh, the promosexuality was a concept that I, I, I it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit silly as a name, but I, I use it to think about um, the ways that, so it, so as part of my, as part of the dissertation research now, the book project, um, one of the, one of the key ways that technologies are introduced at trade shows is through, um, trade show models, promotional models, sometimes they're called brand ambassadors. They're usually women who are dressed in various kinds of um, provocative or uh, like erotic outfits, um, running the gamut from like showgirl aesthetics to like leggings and a t-shirt. There have been a lot of, there's a lot of controversy about, um, usually they're called booth babes, uh, colloquially anyway, some people say that the practice is dying out. On the other hand, people have also said that the practice is dying out since the 70s when Bitcoin was termed. So we'll see. Um, it, I do think it has shifted some. Um, and then so I was thinking about uh, like what, what this is, what this use of like an erotic um, promotional tactic is at, a, at like a business site. And I think it's more mm -hmm. than just like the adage sex sells because it's not, um, because these are people who are supposed to be representing a company at the trade show, um, mm -hmm. really performing like the identity of the company. It's like, it's like a brand scape. And so, um, so I came to call 
this performance of promosexuality, uh, which I think of as the erotic expression of the corporation um, oriented towards capitalist promotion, um, which means that while the most available bodies for this kind of work are often um, like very femme young women, uh, homosexuality, right, could be mapped onto all different kinds of bodies. Um, because the point is that it's, it's a way of a corporation like giving itself an identity and making that identity sexualized with the like oriented towards oriented towards promotion. Um, one way to think about it is if corporations are people as the, as the US the law holds decided that, right. So the question is, if corporations are people, what kind of sexuality does the corporate person have? Um, and so, which was actually a question that, that I was asked once and it took me, I was like, oh, to think about that. And then my mm -hmm. answer to that question um, was uh, promosexuality. The sort of sexuality of the corporation is oriented towards promotion. Mm -hmm. um, and then the project that uh, I was working on at the Hagley that, that I think, I guess it came up in, in the, I workshopped a paper that actually has since come out. Um, oh, good. Um, yeah. On, uh, so there's a paper that um, has recently come out in feminist media histories uh, that looks at a history of, um, it looks at intersections of the porn industry and the tech industry through trade shows. Hmm. Um, actually, the paper may have changed somewhat since since I workshopped it with the, uh, largely because of the really wonderful um, engagement and feedback and ideas that people had at the Hagley when I workshopped it. So that was fantastic. Uh, and I, partly it was really helpful to talk to historians. Um, the paper looks at, uh, maybe it may have shifted from, from when I workshopped it, I'm not sure. Um, it looks at, at, the, at the history, actually largely at CES, this, the texture I was just mentioning, um, it looks at CES's complicated relationship to the porn industry. Um, and I look at two key parts of, of CES history. First, CES's history of um, videotape. Uh, so because some of the first titles to be put on videotape were uh, porn titles or por like that's what that was like the porn industry adopted video faster than mm. Hollywood for a lot of reasons that uh, perhaps exceed this conversation but um, so CES had this essentially a porn exhibit that became um, increasingly controversial as video became um, less associated with the porn industry or as as people hoped that it would have like uh, less salacious connotations. And so the two, like the CES and the, and uh, eventually the Adult Entertainment Expo uh, grew out of CES. Eventually it splits into its own show, though the history of that is, is a bit complicated. Um, and then more recently in the last couple of years, Officially, although they never totally went away, adult-oriented products are now back in the tech industry, um, largely in the guise of sex toys. Um, mm. And so that paper ends up looking at the way that, um, in the same way that video porn was at the forefront of what became the home entertainment, like 
home entertainment practices, the idea that you might not have to go out to watch a movie, that you could watch it in your own home. And of course, now this is expanded with streaming options. And I mean, in this moment, we don't leave our homes anyway, any of us. Um, I root that, I look at the way that the porn industry was at the forefront of that turn. And that's what brought, that's what brought the porn industry to CES. And then I look at that against um, current trends uh, with sex toys that are um, geared towards thinking about uh, or using tracking um, and embodiment, uh, like technologies mm -hmm. that measure mm -hmm. and stimulate and um, play off of like an interactive relationship with the user's body as being also at the forefront of, um, of emerging technologies. And so in that sense, like the, this older history and the controversy that ensued, I think is helpful in thinking through uh, what it is that makes an otherwise like unacceptable um, product acceptable at, a, at this kind of a show. Um, mm. And then, yeah, and then I also look in that piece, largely thanks to um, Roger Horowitz had uh, recommended a, such a helpful article, um, a Halle Lieberman piece from, um, from Enterprise and Society on early market frames that, uh, that were used to introduce the vibrator um, in the Victorian era. That article itself pushing back against um, like misconceptions about the way that the vibrator was introduced, really looking at the way the market frames were uh, necessary and useful and uh, way that the, the uptake of a sex toy really hinged on the promotional discourses that surrounded it, even when they couldn't be explicit. Um, and then I, as I look at that as a way of thinking that actually, like there, I think there are two ways of thinking about histories that, that can shape, um, that can shape our understanding of the like attention given within industry circles to exhibitions of sex toys now. And um, it, what's sort of implicit in that longer arc is that social mores, cultural norms, shape the sexual identity of business firms. Right, right. Um, and making, and especially around, uh, I think, yes, and at the same time, when, when businesses, uh, businesses then also can shape the way that we think about sexuality. Oh. Mm -hmm. Those things that are in a are in a like an intertwined relationship, mm -hmm. even mutual when, shaping, mm -hmm. right? Even when, even and there are times like even when sexuality is like pushed to the side or not acknowledged as such, um, those relationships are still there. Yeah, and, and they come to the forefront. Um, I think sometimes there is a uh, a tendency to think that it is always new, mm. and. Um, mm -hmm. And what was so helpful about being in the archives at Hagley and talking to people is you realize like there are lots of different directions to go in to think about um, precedents that both mm -hmm. something in an older history and then also shed light on like how things are shifting, um, which was extraordinarily helpful. And uh, yeah, it was, it was really nice to be able to workshop that paper. Oh, and that's great. And um, what a great project. And thank you so much for sharing with us today, Lee.
Oh, it is my pleasure. Thank you for having me here. And thanks for your, I know it was hard for us to connect for a while. So it is so, so nice to see you. It is very oh. nice. I hope Likewise. we all get to be in, in person again someday. One, one fine day. And for our audience, if you'd like more Hagley History Hangouts or more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society and our research grants and fellowships, why don't you join us online at hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. And don't be a stranger. <laughs>